Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The New York City Department of Corrections has announced that it will no longer disclose deaths of people in custody to the media. The new DOC chief spokesperson, Frank Dwyer, who took on the post just a few weeks ago, claimed there was no policy, but only a practice of notifying the media when an incarcerated person died in DOC care. The announcement follows two unreported deaths, 52-year-old Rubu Zhao and 31-year-old Joshua Valles, who passed away in the last two weeks. Zhao allegedly jumped from an upper floor of a mental health unit. Valles, who died of a fractured skull, which was wrongly labeled internally as a heart attack, had been given a compassionate release out of DOC custody days before his death. The change comes while a federal monitor is overseeing the city DOC, appointed in response to a lawsuit charging the DOC with cruel and unusual punishment. Lawyers representing the plaintiffs in that case responded with dismay, quote, the attempts to hide the shocking brutality described in the monitor's reports cannot be countenanced, they wrote in a statement. The federal monitor also criticized the change, quote, this serious and disturbing update only reinforces the monitoring team's concern about the management of this individual and any potential reporting irregularities or failures that may or may not have occurred, he said. Late May, the San Diego County Grand Jury issued a 19-page report stating that the Sheriff's Department had been using millions of dollars each year in profits from the San Diego County Jail Commissaries to pay their routine expenses, instead of using the profit towards support programs for those incarcerated at the jail as originally intended. As of at least 2019, the jail stores were generating up to $4 million a year for the welfare fund. Additionally, the Fund Oversight Committee supervises a reserve of more than $13 million, three times its required savings. Among other things, the Sheriff's Department used the Incarcerated Persons Welfare Fund to pay employee salaries, maintain department vehicles, buy gasoline, pay office expenses, and even buy toilets at one jail's recreational yard. The jurors also found that the prisoner programs that are funded do not get monitored for their effectiveness. For instance, the welfare fund has not been audited in years, and the public has no real representation or insight on the committee that is in charge of spending the money. According to a law passed in 1993, the funds are required to be primarily used for the benefit, education, and welfare of incarcerated persons. The same law granted elected sheriffs discretion to spend the money on jail maintenance and employee salaries. This was a revision from a law passed in the 1940s that required the funds to solely be used for the benefit of incarcerated persons. In total, the grand jury report includes 11 recommendations on how to improve the operation and administration of the welfare fund program and requests that the county supervisors pressure state policymakers to repeal the 1993 law allowing welfare funds to pay for routine sheriff's expenses like salaries and equipment. Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed similar legislation in 2020 and again last year. The sheriff is required to submit a response to the grand jury findings by July 31st. 
the County Board of Supervisors must file its reply by August 29th. On May 11th, the agency that runs New York prisons, known as the Department of Corrections and Community Supervision, or DOCCS for short, placed into effect a directive that established a stringent, months-long approval process for incarcerated creators to publish their books, art, music, poetry, film scripts, and other writing. The directive also banned payment to incarcerated people for their creative work without explicit permission from the agency. The directive gave prison superintendents the power to block work from publication if the work violated any number of broad rules, including bans on mentioning the author's crime or portrayals of the prisons that could, quote, jeopardize safety or security. Additionally, they can block pieces that, quote, promote sexual activity, depict symbols of unauthorized group activity, advocate rebellion against government authority, or appear to be written in code. The directive specified that creative works that violate its criteria for publication, quote, will be considered contraband. The directive is intentionally vague, making no mention of journalism, for instance, but DOCCS confirmed to New York Focus that it applied to features, op-eds, and other works for journalistic outlets. Under the new rules, incarcerated artists and authors must submit all work they wish to publish to prison superintendents for approval, and publishing organizations must clear projects with DOCCS's central office 60 days before they plan to receive work. The superintendents would then inspect works for violations. This was an outright and hushed attempt to block incarcerated writers, artists, and poets from getting their work outside of the prison walls. DOCCS didn't publicize the order, and it was not posted to the department's website until after the New York Focus reached out for comment. However, as of June 7th, only a day after the New York Focus published this article on DOCCS attempted censorship of incarcerated creators, the directive was rescinded by the agency. Georgia-based firm Talatrix has created a surveillance system for prisons that embed sensors in walls that communicate with wristbands to track wearers' locations, heart rates, and contact with other incarcerated people. One jail using this system is the Fulton County Jail, where people sleep on the floors in plastic trays, doors hang off of hinges, water pools on the floor, and last year, one person died and was literally eaten by insects. With the funds granted to ameliorate conditions in the jail, the Fulton County Sheriff's Office has decided to purchase 750 sensors at $350 apiece and 1,000 wristbands for $130 each. James Kilgore, a media fellow at nonprofit Media Justice, calls the new system, quote, a terrifying leap forward in terms of using technology to manage the jail population. This is nothing new. Prisons pioneered the use of CCTV in the 1950s with, quote, no discussion about privacy issues at all. Nor is this limited to the U.S. Hong Kong officials have suggested using facial recognition and robot wardens. Face recognition smartwatches have been proposed for use in the U.K. Chinese prisons use emotion tracking technology. Many of the systems have been error-prone, are unproven, or produce inaccurate results for individuals with darker skin tones. Ultimately, Kilgore says, 
putting technology into a system isn't likely to improve the quality of life within a prison. Quote, we need human solutions, he says, such as policy changes and programs that address issues with the justice system. You can't put this technology into a punitive system and have it be anything but punitive. This week on KiteLine, we share the first part of a conversation between Mikol Siegel and Amanda Hall. Hall talks to us about her firsthand experience of incarceration and how it led her to her current work in prisoner and reentry support. We'll air the second part of this conversation next week. My name is Nicole Siegel, and I've been a KiteLine collaborator for the whole life of KiteLine. And I'm just so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great. So um, let's start out with just an introduction of you, of what you are doing right now, your official capacity. What is dream.org? And what is the justice team? And what do you do there as campaign director? of the justice team for dream.org. So dream.org is a national organization. Uh, Our mission really is to close prison doors and open doors of opportunity. Uh, We do that by bringing people together across racial, social, and partisan lines. Within dream.org, we do have three Um, kind of hub issue areas. So we have our Green for All team that works on environmental justice, um, particularly justice for um, Black and Brown folks and um, other people of color who really suffer the most uh, when it comes to climate change. Uh, They work on policies, uh, you know, to make sure that things like clean jobs or, um, you know, just transition happens uh, within those communities and, you know, those communities aren't left out. Then we have the tech team and there, um, you know, tech is such a big part of our world already and continues to expand and play even a bigger role in our daily life. But unfortunately, what we see in tech, uh, as we see in in so many other areas, is that marginalized groups are often left out of those opportunities. Um, So at the tech department, um, it's really a chance uh, to make sure that People of color, um, Black folks, other marginalized groups, formerly incarcerated individuals have a seat at that table and are able to learn tech skills, um, you know, even inspire entrepreneurship. We do uh, cohorts um, and programs to, you know, teach folks really important tech skills and even pair them with a job. Um, So that's our tech department. And then, as you mentioned, I work in our justice department. So over at Justice, we work on issues that impact the criminal legal system. So we do this on the federal level. 
but we also do this on the state and sometimes local level. So over in justice, I oversee our state campaigns um, and our state campaigns to me are, you know, just the way that campaigns should be done. The way that it works is within the states that we choose to do legislative work in, we pair up with an empathy leader. So this is someone who has been directly impacted by the criminal legal system. And we work with them and find out what's important in your state. Instead of us dictating and telling them what they should work on or asking them to join a pre-existing campaign, um, we really listen to the folks that are impacted and then help build a campaign around that, that they lead um, from start to finish, you know, and it's really being able to practice those values of directly impacted leadership um, from start to finish. And, uh, you know, it's been super successful. This year, we worked in nine different states. We have a couple of legislative sessions that are still going on, but already five bills have passed. Five states have passed bills led by directly impacted folks, like from the start to the finish. Um, so yeah, we, we just hope to grow that success. Again, as a national organization, of course, we want to make substantial changes to the criminal legal system and pass good policy and decarcerate and make sure reentry is better. But just as importantly, we want to make sure that we are building leaders or empowering leaders that once we're gone out of a state that the work continues. Um, so that's my gig over at dream.org. I have the pleasure of overseeing. Um, I probably won't even say running because like I said, there's these campaigns are led by our empathy leaders, but overseeing and building the infrastructure um, around those campaigns. Yeah, so that's uh, on the federal level. We work with the Federal Advisory Council. So it's a group of formerly incarcerated folks who were incarcerated within the federal system. And it looks a lot like our state campaign. Um, you know, they tell us about the things that really impacted them. They work hand in hand with us on our federal issues um, and push policy and meet with lawmakers. Uh, right now, our big priority is the Equal Act in Congress. This bill would finally end the sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine. Um, so that's some of the stuff that we're working on right now and how dream.org how it works. That's amazing. Wow. That is just visionary work. I'm really, I'm, I'm blown away. What, how does dream.org support itself? What is the funding stream? Yeah, so we are a 
um, a, you know, a nonprofit. So um, we rely on foundational donors, individual donors. Um, so yeah, that's how we, we do have a C4 arm. Um, so we are able to do some lobbying. Um, it's not a huge bulk uh, of our everyday actions, but even within that C4 world, um, we have even been pushing and hiring directly impacted lobbyists. Um, we were able to hire two directly impacted folks as contract lobbyists in our states this year um, and hope to hire even more because again, at dream.org, we see directly impacted folks in all the work, not just storytelling or organizing, but some folks prefer policy work. Some folks prefer, um, you know, campaign work. So uh, we just want to make sure that folks are able to join the work and be part of it in any way that um, you know, they think suits them the best. Um, and we really prepare folks by having our dream justice cohort. So we train leaders across the country in an intensive three month long training, um, teach them everything from digital organizing to policy work to lobbying, campaigning, um, and our leaders from that cohort has went on to pass bills, start their own nonprofit. Um, yeah, sorry, I kind of went on another tangent. Sorry. Well, that's really fascinating. I know that people are going to want to get involved and, you know, from joining a cohort to donating. So please, this is very interesting and uh, very, very interesting. So tell us a little bit about you and what kind of experiences and education you've had that have brought you to the point where you have the training and the expertise to do this kind of incredibly important work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am from Kentucky, uh, Eastern Kentucky, Appalachia to be exact. Um, and I'm formerly incarcerated. I ended up doing time in Kentucky's um, at that time, only women's prison. Um, and after getting out of prison, I was finally able to address some of the mental health needs, um, you know, uh, really address the trauma I'd been through, um, which is what led me into substance use disorder, which is what led me to prison in the first place. It's just horrible that I wasn't able to gain resources to address that until after um, going to prison. Um, but so it's not a place where a person can get their mental health needs addressed. We just know that. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, so after um, getting out, and some bumps in the road. And finally, like I said, being able to treat those root causes and conditions and be able to address those mental health needs. Um, I realized that, you know, I could never forget 
the women that I left behind. Uh, you know, going to prison is a very traumatic experience. Um, but one of the things that really kept me going was those women that I was incarcerated with. They were truly some of the best women and loving, and we were able to really lift each other up. So I decided after um, I returned to go to college. So I got a degree in social work um, and I thought, you know, I'm going to do direct service. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. And um, I was really fortunate to get a job at a halfway house slash recovery program, which also had a shelter for women that were unhoused. So the facility did a lot of different things. Um, and that experience was, you know, beautiful, being able to help women, being able to tell them I've been right where you've been. Um, but it was also, you know, heartbreaking. Um, I saw women who weren't able to access the resources that they needed. Um, you know, I would tell women, especially that was coming from prison, you know, that was on parole. Well, if you do X, X, and X, you know, if you just do these things, um, you know, your life will be better. We'll be able to get you a job and, and housing. And that wasn't true due to policies. You know, I literally came to a point where I was waking up and I felt like I was lying to these women and to these families. Um, so that's what got me into the policy world. I had to go upstream to really try to address um, the issues. So I started working at the ACLU of Kentucky I worked there as an organizer for a while, became um, more into policy. Um, so I really got that hands-on, um, very intense, hands-on experience. And like I said earlier, when I worked at that halfway house, I oversaw a Department of Corrections contract. So like I said, I thought that direct service and changing it from the inside would work but I told you that didn't work for me. <laughs> um, but, you know, I had that experience. So I worked at the ACLU for four years. And then now um, I've worked at dream.org for a couple of years. So I think that mix of, you know, the policy work in legislatures, um, that direct service work, that the fact that I have personally experienced the criminal legal system and even when I held that contract with Department of Corrections and even was a pre-investigator for a little while, even seeing that side of it. Uh, so it's really interesting that I have seen it, worked in it, experienced it from so many different angles and perspective. Yeah. I wonder what it was like to oversee the DOC contract. That must have put you in a, in a bind sometimes. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So the halfway house that I was a director of, 
was actually the halfway house that I went to after prison. Um, so and is, that was, the he, and is that the healing place for women? Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. So there was um, that program about half of the individuals in that program were just individuals from off the street. Like I said, it was a recovery program. It was also, they also had a department that was a shelter for folks experiencing um, being unhoused. So half of the folks there were not court ordered, but then um, through Department of Corrections, there was a contract, which is how I got there um, with the prisons and jails in the state. So when I became the director of that program, it was very interesting because I worked with, for a small amount of time, with a person who used to be my parole officer. <laughs> so we worked, um, and it was interesting because we would disagree um, quite often, um, and I would be able to push back on things from uh, Department of Corrections. I would get to advocate for the clients, you know, say, no, don't, even if something had happened, you know, please don't send her back to prison, like, she can stay here. Um, but then there were even times that the probation officer and I would be on the same page. And we both thought some of the policies and procedures were crap for a better, uh, for a better term. Um, so that was even more so like a changing point for me when I was like, this is really not working for anybody involved. Um, but yeah, we had a lot of disagreements. Um, I got angry a lot <laughs> when, um, you know, women would have to, would have to go back. So it was um, quite an experience. I'm, I'm glad that I had an, that experience because I was the first woman with a felony conviction that held that position. I was able to hire women that, um, you know, I'd been incarcerated with and um, I know we cared so much about the other women. We're able to advocate for them and push and fight. Um, but again, you know, it just came a point where the policies just prevented us from doing so much of the things that we knew were important and should be done. Um, and, and yeah, it's an interesting experience for sure must have been sometimes scary to be disagreeing with someone who had previously had the power to send you back to prison. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> it really, it, it really was. Um, so yeah, yeah, that was a, that was a whole thing. But you were really able to, um, make the place to make the healing place for women into a truly healing place. And I'm, I'm really struck by how much mutual support all of the women who lived there 
were encouraged to offer each other and were therefore able to offer each other. That's a beautiful vision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it really was. And even when I left to go work on policy, of course, I would visit often or when I would come and talk to the women, I would talk about the things that I was doing in the policy realm yeah. invite them to different events or to the state capitol yeah i didn't stay too far away this has been kite line please reach out if you have a news item we should cover if you want to volunteer or just to tell your story email us at kiteline at wfhb.org or send us a letter at kiteline care of wfhb 108 West 4th Street, Bloomington, Indiana, 47404. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.